Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so this paper is based, it's based on a chapter from my thesis. And this is the first time I've tried to compress it into something which makes sense as a standalone article. So um, it's my first attempt to do that. So I think it's, it's still slightly rough. So I'd, uh, I'd be grateful for your comments. Um, so to get, just kind of get launched off with a quote from one of my informants. Loads of men I've known. They left Tisana to go to Plantain Island just for a few days, just to make a bit of money, but you never see them back in Tisana again. Loads of men I've known, they're never coming back here again. That's why I never sleep on Plantain. The women there will say, why don't you stay here just for one night? In the morning, I'll find you some bait. No, I never land my, if I ever land my boat there, I just sell my fish and I come straight back home. The women who are there, they know how to catch a man. Um, Boat captains in southern Sierra Leone often exchange cautionary tales like this, in which the women in neighboring wharf towns are represented as powerful seductresses and dangerous economic predators. Although these tales are usually recounted playfully, I argue in this paper that they do express a genuine concern amongst fishermen, that they risk finding themselves entrapped against their will in unequal and binding gendered relationships. Similar anxieties have a long genealogy in Sierra Leone, in agricultural economies, one of the most deeply resented mechanisms by which landowning elders are able to manipulate the labour of their poorer male neighbours is to accuse them of adultery and fine them for women trouble. So it forms part of an enduring model of social power that fishermen continue to draw a direct association between their sexuality on one hand and the potential loss of their personal autonomy on the other. However, the tensions that characterise heterosexual relations around the fringes of the Yori Bay need to be viewed as arising within a very particular material context at the intersection between specific um, tensions in the maritime economy. And to understand this, we need to begin, I think, with a sense of why, so, why for so many fishermen, personal freedom is held as a deeply cherished but fragile ideal. So this thesis is based on 18 months of fieldwork in Tisana, which is a, a bustling, multi-ethnic fishing town. Um, in Tisana, almost every woman works on one scale or another as a fish processor, buying fish from men on the wharf and drying them and selling them to men, uh, to traders who come from all around the country to buy dried fish. Almost every working-age fisherman is a sea... <laughs> almost every working-age man is a seagoing fisherman. And fish dried in Tisana's smokehouses eventually find their way to household cooking pots in every corner of the country, from Freetown's crowded slums to the remotest forest village. So I've argued elsewhere that this fishing economy evolved, at least in part, as a refuge from the traditional agrarian economy, which is still shaped by a legacy of domestic slavery. Fishing towns began to mushroom along Sierra Leone's coast in the 1960s, when Ghanaian fishermen visited the region bringing with them far more efficient fishing technologies than had ever been known in this region before. Very quickly, within one generation, Tisana had burgeoned from a tiny farming hamlet into a bustling centre of commercial fishing, fish processing and trade. This rapid growth was fuelled by a steady stream of rural, poor rural migrants. Coastal migrants often described the family villages they left behind as spaces where profound inequalities were hidden within households and where labor, labor exploitation was woven through kinship relations. Uh, so for people who are familiar with the literature from West Africa, this is quite 
um, been explored in quite a lot of detail by other authors. So by comparison, the emerging commercial fishing economy it appears to be a space of new freedom and possibilities. For men, this freedom is expressed in part through an idealization of their um, free mobility. Um, so just to quickly give you a sense, this is where um, my fieldwork was based in Tisana. And this kind of region here is one of the richest fishing grounds in West Africa. Um, whereas most of the women I knew led relatively sedentary lives in Tisana. Um, the men, for men, this kind of landscape was experienced in a very different way. They led very mobile lives. Potentially, they could they would kind of move around between any one of these um, coastal fishing towns in search of a good catch. Um, so, whilst this kind of mobility is experienced on one level as a space of freedom and possibility, the Uri Bay is also characterised by considerable economic and social uncertainty. Within just a few decades of its initial boom, um, this newly emergent economy is already under enormous pressure. Fish stocks suffered a noticeable decline in recent years, and catches have, come, have become dramatically smaller and more erratic. Um, this is partly the result of uh, local unsustainable fishing practices. So, um, for example, uh, people do a kind of dragnet fishing, which uses a very small mesh that catches juvenile fish. Um, but also, local fishermen are really aware that um, part of the root of the decline of their fishing stocks is due to causes completely out of their control. Um, so West Africa's um, coastal waters are very rich and very poorly policed. And there's quite, they have a real problem with these kind of in, international trawlers entering their waters illegally, um, and kind of pillaging their waters. So... And this decimation of West African fisheries is well documented and has become the subject of fairly high-profile environmental campaigning in recent years. What is much less well understood is how these new pressures are being refracted through the social fabric of coastal communities. What interests me in this paper is how understandings of gendered intimacy and interdependence are coming under new forms of strain and are being reconfigured under this context of deepening economic uncertainty. Um, as such, I hope it will offer a window into the ways in which people readjust their expectations and renegotiate intimate relationships in the face of economic decline, when it appears that a boom that once gave them hope is now a thing of the past. The way this paper is structured is I begin by giving a brief sketch of my neighbours' nostalgic memories of, um, of their town's economic boom years, which appear now in the narratives of my informants as a period of rapid economic liberalisation, in which fish had changed hands on the wharf according to the simple, impersonal logic of supply and demand. In the second section, I discuss how the declining size and reliability of catches has dramatically reconfigured these relationships, putting particular pressure on women's livelihoods and forcing them to learn to be far more strategic in working to create, manage and sustain relationships with fishermen. In the final section, I consider the fishing economy as it's viewed from the sea, and discuss the patterns of migration that create these highly charged encounters between fishermen and women when they meet on foreign wharfs. Um, my overarching suggestion um, is that men's cautionary tales of the predatory economic seductresses in, in other wharf towns can be understood as playful expressions of deep, deep gendered tensions within the Yori Bay's economy, in which people continue to aspire for economic freedom 
but the free market is already part of the receding memory of a historic boom. So, um, to understand the gendered economic relations in this coastal economy, it helps to begin with considering the particular material substance of raw fish. In Sierra Leone's hot, humid climate, raw fish rot fast. Fishermen have no chance, no choice but to sell their catch the moment they return to land. Fish, uh, sorry, on the other hand, every bander woman has a limit, limit on the amount of fish she's able to dry, depending on her capital, but also the size of her smokehouse or banda, and her supply of dry fish. Combine this with the unpredictability of fishing. On a day when 25 boats go to, se- go to sea, it's impossible to know whether one or seven or none at all will return to land with a substantial catch. And you begin to imagine how these extreme fluctuations of fish on the wharf might translate into equally extreme fluctuations in the price women are prepared to pay for those fish. So looking back a couple of decades, when I asked non-fishermen to recall the town's economic boom in the 1970s and 80s, they would almost always emphasise, as Paul Bimbala does here, that sometimes there were so many fish they just had to throw them away. If you went to the wharf, they'd give you fish sometimes a huge panful. Here, one of Tasana's most experienced fish processor paints a vivid picture of the fishing economy at a time when Kabora's seas had seemed to contain inexhaustible riches. At that time, if you stood on the land, you could see bonga. So this is a kind of small fish, which is the staple fish in the region. They, they, and they swim in big shoals. Um, so... If we stood here, we could see them. It looked like the water was boiling with the fish jump, jumping. They'd take their net and come and cast, cast it, catch so many fish. What is striking, as Sina continues her account, is that for fishermen, there had been a limit on the value of these enormous catches, which often exceeded the capacity local women were prepared to buy. The closest urban fish market is well over a day's journey away. So fish that were not dried immediately would rapidly decay from a valued source of wealth to a stinking liability. If they caught a lot of fish, then at dawn, the chief, the chief would walk around all the bandas. If he smelled rotten fish, he'd summon that person to court because rotten fish attracts flies and flies spread diseases. He'd check every house, every house. So eventually, the boat, the boat owners, they'd just dig a hole in the sand and cover them up so as not to let them smell. We couldn't finish them all. There wasn't enough wood to dry them. So looking back to this, men and women remember patterns of bargaining on the wharf as having been driven by the simple mechanics of supply and demand. Um, Provided she had enough money, anyone who came to the wharf could buy as much fish as she was capable of drying. And if several boats landed a good catch on the same day, the cost of fish would fall until eventually their value bottomed out entirely. If you had money, you'd dry. You'd fill your band up full. Pim. At first, they'd sell for 5,000 leones per pan. Big pan. Um, and then the price would drop, 4,000, 3,000. But if they saw no one else was coming, they'd just leave all the fish on the wharf and call, you who have bandas, you who have wood, come and gather. Don't let the fish rot. And they'd just give you them. By the time I arrived in Tasana in 2010, Dynamics on the wharf had shifted dramatically. Although the volume of catch on the wharf still fluctuates dramatically on a day-to-day basis, the longer-term narrative I was repeatedly presented with was one of gradual but dramatic overall decline. In fact, the most urgent problem nowadays concerning banda women 
is not what price they're able to bargain for fish, but whether they'll be able to buy any fish at all. I was often struck that just as men use all their skill and strategy to hunt fish on the open water, the same is equally true of women hunting fish along the beach. Many Banda women pass a large part of each day meandering up and down to Sana's two-mile wharf, attempting to match their movements to coincide with the only very loosely predictable arrival times of the different boats, where they accumulate at the landing sites of particularly large boats, Banda women form the kernel of a vital but transient gendered space. As they sit waiting, sometimes for hours, watching the sea, chatting, braiding one another's hair, these would-be buyers are joined by other women, sometimes with pans full of fruit to barter, sometimes with cakes or cooked food to sell, sometimes hoping their friendship alone might be enough currency to elicit a few fish when the boat finally arrives. My early field notes are littered with often quite confused accounts of the scenes that unfolded on the wharf immediately after one of these larger boats returned to land, as I attempted to untangle the unspoken logic by which some people were able to buy fish and others returned home empty-handed. This excerpt describes the scene on the wharf following a fairly typical catch. By the time Pa Brimer's crew drew close to, hand, close to land, there must have been over 50 of us waiting on the beach. But despite the large number of women who'd come to the wharf, only a small fraction stirred from their seats when the fish began to be carried ashore. A handful leaned over heaps of fish where they were turned out onto the sand and began picking through to decide which ones they would take. Other women were displaying various degrees of half-interest in this measuring and sorting, but most, seeing the disappointing size of the catch, simply drift, began to drift off in different directions, or, for lack of anything more urgent to do, finish their mango and their conversation. When I asked Mariama whether she was going to buy, she'd laughed at the silliness of my question. If they sell gimi, I'll buy. So this word, selgi, is... Um, expresses quite an interesting quality of the transactions that happen on, on the wharf. So it's a compound verb, um, sell, give. Uh, so in almost every other, so in, in most contexts, if you're buying something for money, you would just say sell. And if you're giving something as a gift, you'd say gi. Uh, so this is the only context I was aware of where people kind of joined those two verbs together. Um, and, oh, where am I? Uh, so, so I think this captures something quite important. Regardless of the fact that Mariama had come to the wharf with cash, fully expecting to pay for any fish she managed to procure, her words have embedded within them the implication that if any transaction tra transpired, the fisherman or boat owner would have been doing her a personal favour. Over some time in Tisana, I began to realise that for all their seemingly opportunistic movements up and down the wharf, Banda women know very well which men are likely to sell given fish and under what circumstances. Put simply, the only really reliable way to secure a reliable supply of fish is to establish a customer relationship. So this is a kind of long-term trading relationship with a fisherman who's then obligated to give you first refusal of their catch. Although they'll buy opportunistically wherever they can, many Banda women only have a single regular customer. This is usually her husband, and their business relationship is closely interwoven with their personal one. So you see, for example, that um, all the biggest smokehouses in town typically belong to the wives of the men who own the biggest boats in town. 
Um, even so, beware for their conjugal finances to merge completely. Here, as in rural parts of Sierra Leone, husbands and wives have always maintained separate in income streams and expenditures, whether in cash or kind. What this means is that women buy fish from their husbands and then sell it on to their traders who, trader, urban traders at a small profit. Unfortunately, if a band or woman's partner is himself a poor crew member, his custom doesn't go very far to securing a steady supply of fish. Crewmen are typically given two days a week to divide the boat's catch among themselves, each channeling um, his share directly towards his own customer. For the rest of the working week, the catch belongs to the boat owner and it's his decision who to sell ghee. Yet, even on these days, you can expect to see the entire crew's wife waiting on the wharf for their husband's boat. Their personal connection with the boss man, through their husband, gives them good enough reason to hope they may be offered an opportunity to buy some surplus after his own, banda's wife, after his own wife's banda is full. But this is, no mean, this is by no means guaranteed, however, and they'll be competing with various other women, relatives, friends, perhaps girlfriends of the boat owner, each of whom has her own special social claim to buy a share of the cat. So this straining of rather too sparse resources over rather too stretched social networks is a common feature of life in Tisana, and one that stands in sharp contrast to a not-so-distant past when fish were in such plentiful supply that, as we hear these two elders reminiscing of life in the 1970s, everyone would sell to everyone. There was no discrimination. Yes, before, there were no regular customers at that time. Whoever had money could buy. This fish was plentiful. We'd get a good catch. I think people who were here before were more lively by now there was, than now. There was more happiness. The money was flowing. So what I want to emphasize here is that the elders aren't just expressing nostalgia for the lost the material bounty of this era, but also for what they remember as a simpler and more impersonal market economy. Um, this forms an interesting counterpoint to the substantial body of classic ethnographic literature describing the anxiety people experience when previously complex and multi-layered economic systems are eroded by the depersonalizing forces of money. Whereas it had once been possible to buy and sell fish with little thought for anything other than the simple calculation of profit, the wharfside economy is nowadays increasingly, uh, quote, uh, permeated with the atmosphere of the gift, where obligation and liberty intermingle. That's Marcel Mass. For example, sitting outside her cavernous smokehouse, my wealthy neighbor, Sentu, explained to me that, myself, I have my own boat, but on some days I don't dry. I'll say thee, my companions. For example, you and me, we know each other. I'd help you. I'd sell ghee to you. I'm not just going to say only I can dry and no one else. If I sell ghee you, God must add to my own money because you'll be grateful to me. So we should be careful not to read this moralizing language as evidence that the transformations in Tisana's tightening economy are in any way benign. The very fact that boat owners are able to talk convincingly about selling their fish as though this tra transaction were an act of mu munificence only serves to highlight the extent to which economic power has slid away from the women who buy and dry fish. This steady slide in the balance of supply and demand on the wharf has eroded women in, women's bargaining power such that they often find themselves struggling to work within a stiflingly narrow profit margin. 
however sincere boat owners might be in imagining their sail, sales on the wharf as acts of helping the women, the reality is they tend to make a far greater profit from these transactions than their buyers could ever hope to. What has been given is not wealth, but only the coveted crevice of an opportunity through which, perhaps, to make some. Um, unsurprisingly, to hear a poor fish processor describing these same transactions, one comes away with rather less impression that she considers herself the recipient of a generous gift. The tone of Legby's quote here is typical. Even this fish that we buy on the wharf, with all the suffering, I get so little profit. If I had any other work to do, I'd leave this fish business straight away. The fishermen still earn, but we Banda women, nothing. Tisana's women routinely stay up all through the night and spend many hours each day in their swelteringly hot, dark, densely smoked-filled bandas. Because her day is structured by the movements of the fishing boats and the mechanics of fish drying, Legby's punishing work rhythm continues unabated, regardless of whether she's managed to secure a decent load of fish on the wharf or only a tiny quantity of low-value fish. So just to kind of summarise um, up to now, the, although the current context of ecological decline is affecting everyone in the fishing economy, it's proved particularly damaging for Banda women, who nowadays find it increasingly difficult to secure fish on the wharf. As I explore in, the, in this next section, women have responded to this economic crisis by learning to be increasingly strategic and working to build and sustain relationships with fishermen that will give them access to a supply of fish. The level of skill this involves should not be underestimated. Throughout my stay in Kaboro, I watched as my good friend and host, Jacob, a respected elder in Tasana, struggled and repeatedly failed to establish himself as a small-scale fish processor and trader. More days than not, I'd see him return home, dejected and empty-handed, complaining, this scramble for fish is just too much. Eventually, I asked one of Tasana's most successful businesswomen why it was that Jacob seemed to experience such difficulty, even on days when he had plenty of money to spend. She answered me that even if you don't have a customer, you can still buy fish, but you have to talk to the fishermen fine, greet them fine, turn, turn, which means kind of cajole or coax, coax them fine. If you, if you just stand there on the wharf with your money, you won't get anything. So as Howard notes, a bit of st strategic flirtation can go a long way to persuading boat owners to sell you their surplus fish. And it may be largely for this reason that Jacob was experiencing such difficulties in what is, after all, a highly gendered role. To repeat a point already made, the emphasis on working to create an atmosphere of intimacy and charm in wharfside transactions stands in, in direct contrast with Howard's own recollection of a not-so-distant past when, as she had put it, if you had money, you'd dry, you'd fill your band of full. Pim? Her response also hints at the moral tensions which so often riddle these gendered transactions on the wharf. While she's perfectly open that her feminine charm is part of what makes her good at her job, this, the Creo term she uses, turn, turn, is hardly an unambiguously positive one. In fact, it's often used by people to describe situations where they consider themselves to have been manipulated or conned. But in the current ecological context, it takes a lot more than charm to become a successful bando woman. To illustrate this, I'll introduce another of Tisana's most respected bando women, Ami. 
So Amy was constantly on the move, all day back and forth, meeting one boat after another and shuttling fish, often in small piecemeal lots, back and forth to her banda to dry. Unable to rely on her husband, who was a heavy drinker and had long since stopped going to sea, um, she had, over the years, managed to accumulate over a dozen small-scale customers, mostly young crew members who, having, returned to having arrived into Sana as strangers, had found in Ami a valuable ally. When I asked Mohammed, for example, why it was that he chose to work with Ami rather than any other Banda woman in town, he immediately emphasised that he valued the mentoring aspect of their relationship. Sometimes she'll advise me, call me, advise me, when I first came here and she didn't know me, she saw that my eyes were red, like a person who's been smoking marijuana. So she took me aside and said, please, you've come from far away to come here. Don't get involved in that nonsense. We've been customers for years now. Amy's importance to her customers went far beyond simple moral support. One evening in the rainy season, for example, I stopped by her banda and found her serving up rice from a pot that was, even by Sierra Leonean standards, cavernous. This isn't Amy. It's just to get you, give you a sense of, that's a normal pot. So Amy's was a lot bigger than that. Um, just, as I was just as I was wondering what she could possibly doing, be doing with such a vast quantity of food, Mohammed arrived with a pan to collect his own serving. Mohammed lives at least half an hour's walk away at the other end of town, but not having gone to sea for several weeks, he was more than prepared to make the journey to collect his dinner. As we've already seen, fishing is, at best, a highly unpredictable business. Even a relatively successful fisherman can never be certain on a day-to-day -day basis whether he'll catch enough fish to beat his basic household needs. For those who opt to work with a band of women other than his own wife, Receiving a steady supply of food from outside their own household can go a long way towards evening out these fluctuations and day-to-day -day insecurities. Gift relations are so embedded within these commercial economic exchanges that the two are mutually dependent and inseparable. So, what gives these um, gifts an added salience is that, in other contexts, people often stress the danger inherent in accepting gifts of food that by doing so, you expose yourself to the mercy of your benefactor. Bad medicines, or ifon wei, are assumed to circulate wide, widely through Kabora's covert economy and in a bewildering array of forms. At one extreme are rare and dangerously potent substances said to be made from the body parts of human victims. But the, at the other end of the spectrum, half-half ifon, used to influence people or secure their loyalty, are considered a fairly mundane element of the day-to-day -day economic life. Viewed within such an atmosphere of widespread mistrust, the customer's daily, taken-for-granted acts of giving and receiving take on an added salience and play an important role in transforming economic interactions into social ones. By publicly receiving and eating her food each day, and the fisherman implicitly resigns himself to the fact that, if she wanted to, this customer could and would use this power to influence him, but that he trusts her not to exploit this power. Returning to Mohammed now, these gifts of food were, for him, as for many of Abby's customers, far more than a symbolic gesture of goodwill or trust. Not only a poor crew member, but also a stranger in Tisana, Mohammed was in a doubly vulnerable position. He worked as a regular crewman within a large boat, 
a position that was considered slightly more prestigious and, in general, more secure than the floating day workers who touted their labour to any boss man in need of an extra pair of hands. However, if they want to retain their jobs, crewmen are obliged to remain loyal to their boats at all times, even when torn nets or dangerous weather conditions prevent them from going to sea at all. Throughout the long rainy season of 2011, Mohammed's boat was plagued with technical problems. Each time I saw him, he would return my greeting with the same stoical sigh and an ever-mounting ever tally of, the day, of his days without earnings. Manageable, he'd tell me. Things are only just manageable. Even now, we're still on maintenance. Today makes 35 days. Very few crewmen can afford the luxury of saving money. So, particularly like strangers from Mohammed with no local network of kin to, um, to whom they can turn in time of need. These periods of enforced economic activity put them under enormous strain. That things were manageable at all came down in large part to his relationship with Amin. This is a quote from Mohammed. If we don't go to sea, then we don't get anything, even if we're working on mending the nets. We have stable customers, so if you're my customers, any time that I'm broke, I'd go to you and say, Jennifer, I don't have any money, you'd lend me something. I don't pay it back Balco, small, 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 which means very gradually. Um, so even last year when my woman was pregnant, at that time I didn't have any money, and Amy lent me 100,000 leones. I paid it back small, small. Until now I've paid her all back. She never once shouted at me, me, I like to be secret. I don't want to expose my business. So that was one thing that made me like her more. Given that uh, many Banda women find it increasingly difficult to secure access to a regular supply of fish, it's easy to see the benefit to Amy of keeping her suppliers in debt. However, effectively, fish sales may be channeled by love, friendship, or habit. It's only when a fisherman owes you money that you have a legal right to summon him to court if he sells his fish to another woman. This puts a slightly different perspective on Mohammed's gratitude that, as he was so keen to stress, Ami has never pre uh, pressured him to repay her anything other than small, small. Although she never charges her customers interest on these loans, Ami nonetheless profits directly from their indebtedness to her for it buys her the loyalty she needs in order to secure a reliable supply of fish for her banda. For someone as vulnerable as Mohammed to be so routinely indebted to his far more prosperous and better connected trading partner, one could easily imagine this might foster a potentially exploitative power dynamic. Yet, however unequal he and Ami may be in terms of their social and material capital, it's clear from Mohammed's own account that he considers Ami to have liberated him from an altogether less appealing possibility. Like, you see this problem I have at the moment in court. If I went to my boss man, so that's the owner of his boat, um, he'd help me, but I don't want that. I don't want to be in debt to my boss. I prefer to borrow from my customers, because even if I decide to switch to a different boat, I'd keep my customers. For a poor crewman like Mohammed, it would be difficult to overstate the importance of this freedom to decide to switch to a different boat. The examples Mohammed gives here of medical costs and court cases are typical of the kinds of unexpected expenses that occur now and again in the life of every crewman, and that few are able to afford without turning to someone more prosperous for help. 
Put in a similar situation, some of his colleagues would opt to borrow from their boss man. But, as Mohammed goes on to explain, if I borrowed money from my boss, I'd be frightened to leave him in case he took me to court. In conversation, people described these indebted crewmen as resembling the one thing young men most fear becoming, like slaves. Tasana's economy is one in which elements of the market exist alongside and often in explicit tension against more personalized and socially binding modes of economic relationship. So far from exercising economic autonomy, uh, this is a quote from Andrea Cornell, um, in a way that would free them from the shackles of men, the most successful businesswomen in Tizana are those who are most effective in accumulating close, durable economic partnerships with fishermen. For Mohammed, forming a relationship with a strong banda woman is a compromise, one that affords him the basic social security that comes from having a patron without structuring him too explicitly in the role of an indentured dependent. However, as we'll see in the following section, it's an uneasy compromise. Okay, so we should be clear by, it should be clear by now that the one thing all successful banda women have in common is that they've learned to be highly strategic in creating and managing their relationship with fishermen in order to secure access to that ever, seemingly ever more scarce and precious resource. The fact, that, the fact is, though, that under normal circumstances, the myriad of small neg- negotiations that go into making any relationship as durable and intimate as that between a fisherman and his long-term customer are simply too many and too subtle to be easily summarised. Emerging as they do from far longer stories of emotional and economic entanglement between two individuals, These relationships extend well beyond the wharf into kitchens, bedrooms, and imaginations around Tisana. However, there is one context in which customer relationships are forged with a special urgency and a stripped-down simplicity on the wharf. That is when, as is often the case, fishermen take their boats to go on Allen and base themselves briefly in another fishing town along the coast. So as we've already seen, fishermen often place a strong ideological commitment on their aspiration to personal freedom. One of the most vivid expressions of this is the way in which they explicitly valorise their fluid migratory patterns. It was common for fishermen to make a rhetorical analogy between their own fluid, unpredictable migrations and the equally unsettled movements of their fishy quarry unseen beneath the water's surface. Um, So this is a quote. Just as the fish migrate... So too the fishermen migrate. The fish go, the fishermen go. The fish stop, the fishermen themselves stop. Any way they go, the fishermen will go there too. Just to bring you back to the map. Nowadays, a combination of outboard engines and mobile phone technology has made it possible for captains to move very intuitively, relying on hearsay to judge day by day whether it might be worth trying their luck in a different fishing town. Um, so to quote a boat owner, there are so many Allens, my, like my boat has just gone to Tombo. We hear the fish are dying there right now. They'll go and lodge for one week. They'll look how the fishing conditions are there. If they see the catch is poor, then they'll come back. Or perhaps I'll call them and say, come, come over here. The fish are here. This one word, Allen, captures much of what is distinct about um, not only the lifestyle, but also the position from which the Ori-based fishermen view their world. As you might have noticed already, it has two slightly different meanings. 
In one sense, to Alan is a verb. To move, to migrate fluidly through the water, not knowing with any certainty where one might settle or for how long. But in its, in its other usage, an Alan is also a place. It's the generic term that migratory fishermen give to other coastal towns when viewed from the sea. A location etymologically, eti etymologically defined by movement and impermanence. In this second sense, Plantain Island stood in the imaginations of my neighbours in Tusana as the purest example of an Alan they knew, a dynamic, unstable town through which every cliché of fishing could be illustrated. Having been established as a make makeshift camp in the late 1950s, this temporary outpost rapidly burgeoned into the most frenetically busy fishing centre in Sierra Leone. Nowadays, Plantain's Beach is incessantly busy with boats being hauled into and out or back out to the sand, into the sea, or back out up onto the sand. As fishermen jostle directly with traders on the beach, everywhere one looks, people are pulling fish from nets, packing dried fish, negotiating a deal. This is a quote. Um, this is the area here where the money flows. We have fishermen here from as far as Senegal, yes. And we have traders coming from Bo, from Kenema, Moyamba, all over the country. You can't sit down and idle here, just sit down and relax. Oh no. Those who go to sea, go to sea. Those who sell, sell. Those who buy, buy. That's it. That's the way we move here. So the language Sufyan uses to describe his, his island home as a node in wider oceanic currents of migrant fishermen, catch and trade goods calls to mind Hawafa's description of the Pacific o Ocean as a sea of islands. So, just to come back here again. Um, rather than being separated by expanses of water between them, Sierra Leone's islands appear, from this perspective, as punctuation points in a social universe that is inherently liquid. The most experienced captains are highly tuned to the sh shifting dynamics across their watery region not only where other boats are experiencing success, but also how the prices are fluctuating at different points around the coast. At every island, the price can change. Like here in Tisana, for now, they're buying bonga at 700 leones per dozen. But right now in Plantain, they're buying them for 1,500 leones per dozen. Now, now, now. The difference is too much. So people decide to leave here and go to Plantain. There is one thing which all fishermen agreed with equal enthusiasm, would never constrain their choice of destination. And this is whether or not the crew have any established personal contacts in that particular town. Here, Fode describes the strong sense of camaraderie which young crewmen like himself tend to experience on arrival in an unfamiliar fishing town. Fishermen, we all move around so much. Anywhere we go, we're like one big family. We're all brothers. Um, it's like if a white man came to Sana right now, you'd have to lodge him, wouldn't you? You'd just have to, because he's in a strange place and he is your brother. Well, so it is with we fishermen. Any island you go to, fishermen will welcome you, find you a place to stay, food to eat, even clothes to wear. Yes, they'll even take off their own trousers and give them to you. They know that if they came on island to you, you would do the same for them. As rapidly as islanding fishermen are able to form new relationships on unfamiliar wharfs, the flip side of this dynamic is, un is predictable. Many women live with a palpable sense of insecurity, knowing that their partner is perfectly liable to relocate at a moment's notice, moving to a different wharf town and taking up a new life with a different wife and business partner. 
In their conversations with me, Banda women often discuss their anxieties about abandonment in very material terms, as the severing of an economic partnership which left them far more vulnerable in the aftermath. So the freedom and mobility that fishermen so actively valorise is often experienced as a source of considerable anxiety for the women whose lives and livelihoods are entangled with theirs. Yet, despite the very real and justified anxieties that women have about their potential abandonment, it would be rather too simplistic to view Banda women as guileless victims of their flighty menfolk. Rather, the difference between these two phenomenologies of space serve to highlight the tensions inherent in a social world as mutable as Dasana's, in which the momentum towards establishing relationships and the desire to disentangle oneself from them are often held in dynamic opposition. The the image which is beginning to emerge, hopefully, for you, is is one in which men and women inhabit quite different landscapes. There are interesting parallels here between the ways in which gender has come to be mapped onto the coastal topography through everyday practices associated with commercial fishing and other much longer-standing patterns of gendered segregation. For as long as we have economic records about Sierra Leone, it has always been the case that people experience their landscape as powerfully gendered. Young people only become unambiguously male or female following time spent in ritual seclusion in their respective initiation society's bush. Throughout their adult lives, it remains the case that certain important decisions and pivotal life events can only take place safely in gendered seclusion in the Poro or Bundu society bush. Bundu and Poro ideology has historically cast as potentially dangerous but also as powerfully productive any boundary space in which men and women come into contact beyond the careful regulation of, of sodality laws. Um, indeed, powerful society elders um, derive part of their mystique precisely from their ability to flaunt the dangers inherent in these liminal spaces. The marine eco- within the marine economy, heightened patterns of male mobility combined with the importance of heterosexual trading partnerships, create a coastal topography in which men and women routinely find themselves operating across a highly charged boundary zone. When islanding fishing crews land their boats on the shores of an unfamiliar wharf town, they enter straight into potentially complex economic relationships with women about about whom they know almost nothing. So a tiny drop of land just two miles off the coast of the Shenge Peninsula, Plantain Island is Tisana's closest island. It happens also to be the busiest and most profitable fishing centre in Sierra Leone. In theory, then, a short stay on Plantain Island ought to be as profitable as it is convenient for Tisana's fishermen. Yet many of the more experienced boat captains I knew claim to view the island with considerable trepidation. Take Samila, for example. As, the boat owner, as, a boat, as the owner of a boat rather than a crew member, Samila does not dispute the ease with which he would be welcomed into an unfamiliar fishing town. But he takes a rather more cautious view of this first encounter than Fode's benign description of a universal brotherhood of fishermen. There are so many islands. You can go anywhere you want. If you hear the fish are dying in Bauma, you go to Bauma. If you hear the fish are dying in Kata, you go to Kata. Even if I've never been there before, I can go. The only thing is, on the day that I arrive, I should come with fish. 
That fish there, it is that which will open up all my subabu. Yes, that fish, it will make them lodge me fine in a fine place. It, it will let me live there well, make them give me respect. Subabu is a Creole word describing a person's network of use, useful social relationships. And it's striking that in the absence of any pre-existing subabu, it is the fish and not the men themselves that Samila credits as having the power to forge these new relationships. So put more bluntly, whereas Fode experiences his new relationships as emerging naturally out of fisher folk's mutual camaraderie and rules of good hospitality, Ibrahim, as the person responsible for the fish and the money, interprets any social interaction in this strange environment as, underpan, as underpinned by strategic negotiations of a more material kind. And viewed in this light, it is the feminine attractions of Banda women in particular that come to be viewed with a new suspicion. Whereas locally based fishermen are almost always tied into long-standing relationships with their female buyers in town, these visiting boats of locally unattached men offer a rare opportunity for Banda women to establish new, if temporary, custom relationships. But competition is fierce, and women have to act quickly in, or to, in order to claim a new boat when it arrives. Ibrahim's account of what happens when he allens to Plantain Island is typical of the way in which captains and boat owners describe these encounters, with something between attraction and misgiving. They want your fish, but they want you too. Like myself, I have a boat, so the moment my boat lands, the women all come around. They come around and talk to me like they already know me, they bring me fine food, she'll come and lean on me, she'll just linger on me now, she'll talk to me closely. That's how they do it. One day in, a rainy season, in the rainy season, I spent an entire afternoon sheltering from a storm in Kumba's parlor, watching as he and Ibrahim switched ever-inflating accounts of their encounters with these women on Plantain Island. I'd rarely seen the two men so animated, as they described the extents to which they claimed these, the women were prepared to go in the attempt to entice guileless boat captains into entering custom relationships. This is a quote from my field notes. Ibrahim and Kumba loved recounting these stories, wide-eyed with a theatrical emotion somewhere between delight and fear. As the rain thundered down outside, they were on their feet, moving around Kumba's tiny parlor, taking turns to role-play the different characters. First, Kumba was the fearsome seductress, Ibrahim playing the gormless young fisherman. Now it was Ibrahim's turn to play the plantain island siren, sashaying over to where Kumba sat, pretending to laugh coquettishly at his jokes, stroking his arm fawningly. Striking a comedy pose, between, comedy feminine pose, he mimed peeling his skirt up to his waist to seductively remove a stack of cash from the pocket of his skin-tight shorts. Soon the roles were switched again. Ibrahim lay on the floor in his imagined bed, half cowering, half laughing, as Kumba tapped, tapped, tapped gently on his bedroom door, asking in a husky whisper, are you that fisherman who just landed today? <laughs> um, one thing that's particularly striking about these tales is that, see, that they seem to compress into a single highly charged encounter on a foreign wharf. Many of the material layers that, as we have seen, characterise the longer-term negotiation of gendered economic relations at home. An undercurrent of sexual tension is certainly one facet of that counter, encounter, and the one that the fishermen most enjoyed recounting. 
But it is no coincidence, for example, that both Kumba and Sumaila also mention being given gifts of food and offered loans of cash by the women hoping to secure their custom. If you say you're, there, you're just there to earn money, that you don't want a girlfriend, they'll say, let me lend you money for petrol. They have these little handbags where they keep their money and their half-half fetish medicines, which they put in your food. Um, so as we've already seen, it's not without good reason that under normal, normal circumstances, people are extremely wary about who they agree to accept gifts of food from. Whereas back home, the flow of rice between a banda woman and her long-term customer can be read as evidence of the implicit trust between them. On these foreign shores, the gifts are experienced instead with a heightened sense of anxiety. This is a world in which it's impossible to disaggregate the strategies by which people set out to influence one another's bodies from their broader efforts to build in the intimate relationships that enable them to navigate to Sana's tight economy. The complex ways in which movements of, ca of cash, food, sex, and fetish medicines are implicated in one another in the men's stories speaks vividly to the intimacy and interdependence that characterize many gendered economic relationships across the Yuri Bay, but also to the deep-seated ambivalence men so often feel, finding themselves drawn into relationships that are as binding as they are transactional. So here, my ethnography echoes a thread of literature which has emerged in recent years from southern and eastern African fishing communities, um, where they've no noticed a similar pattern of declining, declining fish stocks uh, kind of being reflected in increasingly transactional relationships between men and women in wharf towns. However, whilst this literature tends to view women as victims forced to prostitute themselves to exploitative fishermen, people in Kaboro seemed more likely to make exactly the opposite assumption. You may remember back onto Sana Wharf, Hawa had admitted quite openly that in the current economic client, climate, manipulating men, or turn-turning them, is an essential skill for any hopeful fish processor. Faced with a wharf full of unfamiliar banda women, all vying to secure their custom, it was fishermen who described themselves feeling open to predation. Of course, there doesn't need to be a direct conflict between emphasizing women's kind of profound and deepening material vulnerability, which is what I've tried to do in the uh, first section of this paper, um, and also emphasizing how kind of strategic and tactical they've learned to be in order to um, kind of negotiate their relationships to survive in these difficult economic conditions. As other ethnographers have found in similarly impoverished, impoverished settings elsewhere in this region, people's daily priorities are often very explicitly focused on meeting their basic material needs. And almost all other aspects of their relational lives are ultimately refracted through that lens. In particular, this paper could be read as building on Caroline Bledsoe's classic research amongst Mende and Kbele speakers in the 1980s, in which she painted an uncompromisingly honest picture of the tough personal choices young men and women, also poor men and women, are sometimes forced to make working to nurture certain relationships and neglect others in the basic struggle to balance viable livelihoods. So, in conclusion, uh, it's striking that these highly caricatured images of banda women as powerful sexual come economic predators are only ever used to describe the women in other Allens. 
I heard men talking in a similar way about their experiences of visiting Delken, Tombo, Funkia, but always with the same caveat. Here in Tisana, our own women, our own women's style is different. Our women would be ashamed. So my intention is not, therefore, to suggest these stories reflect a perfectly true reflection of ethnographic fact. Um, but rather to view them as a playful form of commentary through which fishermen reflect on their experience of the shifting coastal economy. Um, these stories that, that men share about these plantain island sirens also draw at least part of their emotional energy from the ways in which they echo with and resonate against broader tropes about the risks inherent in boundary spaces and the fine line between seduction and predation. In Tisana, as across West Africa, people are familiar with stories of Mamiwata, for example, a seductive, fearsome spirit, often described enticing her devotees into a watery prison with false promises of lavish wealth. Seemingly modelled on the mermaid figureheads that once adorned European slaving ships, folk tales about Mamiwata remain a powerful uh, motif for reflecting on contemporary experiences of economic explo exploitation. Plantain Island had once been the site of one of the busiest slave forts on the Upper Guinea coast. So it's striking that this liminal space continues to be imagined as a site where the lure of economic riches and the fear of personal entrapment come together in the figure of a powerful female seductress. You want to come home, but they don't allow it. They talk to you fine, they wrap, wrap themselves around you, kiss you, or the ones who have money, they take it out and lend it, and lend it to you. They're bad oh. So that when the time comes and, you, and you're ready to leave, then they'll ask you about the money. They'll say, eh, you want to go? What about my money? Why don't you just stay in this water here first? The fish are dying, so you sit down. Uh, anthropologists have often returned over the years to the classic argument made by both Marx and Simmel that by enabling people to imagine material transactions as devoid of any moral specificity, Liberalised markets are corrosive of, of social relationships. We're by, now, we're by now used to hearing that for many people in newly capitalised societies, this desocialization de of economic relations is experienced as a source of extreme moral anxiety. However, in Tisana, fishermen's most vividly expressed anxieties seem to be focused in exactly the opposite direction. To understand the trepidation my neighbours expressed, as they watch their economic lives becoming ever more heavily determined by patterns of intimacy, debt, and social obligation, these changes need to be viewed against a recent historical trajectory in which the rapid growth of commercial fishing had appeared to be ushering in a period of unprecedented personal independence. According to the wistful recollections of my, of my informants, there had been a period on Tisana Wharf, however fleeting, when they seem to have achieved something close to Simmel's vision of a monetary system in which, quote, man is free, free because he can sell anything and free because he can buy anything. Nowadays, however, fishermen and banda women alike look back with nostalgia to that boom period through the lens of a present in which the maritime economy is coming under ever greater pressure. As competition for fish steadily accelerated, an increasing amount of women's day-to-day -day labour involves working to create ties of intimacy and obligation with fishermen, simply in order to win the opportunity to buy fish. For many fishermen, their greatest concern is that when faced by women more wily than themselves, 
they may inadvertently find themselves entangled in sticky webs of obligation that they had had no intention of entering. Thanks, your paper final.